I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Octavia Bright. On her memoir, This Ragged Grace. Octavia Bright is a writer and broadcaster. She co-hosts Literary Friction, the acclaimed literary podcast and NTS radio show with Carrie Plitt. She has also presented programmes for BBC Radio 4, including Open Book, and hosts literary events for bookshops, publishers and festivals, such as the Cheltenham Literature Festival and events for the South Bank Centre. Her writing has been published in a number of magazines, including The White Review, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, Wasafiri, Some Such Stories and The Sunday Times. And she has a PhD from the Spanish department at UCL, where she wrote about hysteria and desire in Spanish cinema. And today we're going to be talking about Octavia's new book, which is This Ragged Grace, a memoir of recovery and renewal. Octavia, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. So first of all, just to make you feel at home, I'm going to ask you to read us a bit from the book at the beginning. (laughs) It would be my pleasure. I'll just start with the prologue. I'll give you the prologue. It feels like a good place to start. I walked so hard and so fast in the winter of 2013 that I wore right through a pair of red Doc Martens. Things felt very raw and I was full of fear. I was okay standing still if I had voices in my ears, a podcast or an audiobook for company. But before long, impatience would overwhelm me and I'd have to move my legs. My muscles propelled themselves and I found myself carried all over the city. Even in my flat, I struggled to be still. I made playlists of repetitive, upbeat music, and in the evenings I would close the shutters and dance. Then I could forget myself, as if the movement were a spell, a way of escaping the things I wasn't ready to face. It felt like a compulsion, not a choice, like I was the luckless girl in the red shoes. My boots were the colour of oxblood, so maybe there was something in it. Seven months earlier, I'd stopped drinking. It's funny how we say that, stopped drinking, as though the only liquid worth talking about is alcohol. Had I stopped drinking entirely, I would have had about three days to live. Not very long. Either way, I had stopped drinking alcohol at the end of a hot June, at the beginning of a messy summer, and by the time the days were shortening, the pink cloud of new sobriety had worn off, and I was unable to be still. Between my last drink, 
a warm bottle of cheap white wine shared with a couple of friends on my sitting room floor. Had I known it would be my last, I would have chosen something else. Maybe a chilled tequila cocktail with salted grapefruit and lime. And the first frost, I crossed the threshold into that superstitious realm, the age of 27. Most of the preceding year had been filled with chaos and blind, impulsive action, and it wasn't until I found myself aligned with this new number, bruised and sober, that its significance hit me. The so-called 27 Club, that roll call of young artists who died in their 28th year, whether by their own hand or in other tragic circumstances. I, of course, did not see myself as next in a lineup that includes Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, Janis Joplin, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Jim Morrison and Amy Winehouse, but it left me wondering about the tenderness of that stage of life, when one is adult but often not entirely, and when destructive habits are just starting to lose the glittering sheen of youthful folly. My extended adolescence had abruptly reached its end. So, Octavia, tell us then what is the what is the idea behind the book? Well, it's charts chronologically the first seven years of recovery. So I really wanted to start at the end of one story and the beginning of another. And I think addiction is one story and then recovery is the next story. But as I started to think about the question of recovery and what it means, I realized the other story that is folded into the seven years, the first seven years of my recovery was my father's illness, which had him moving in the opposite direction to me. So he developed Alzheimer's. And while I was remembering myself, which is what it feels like after addiction, where you sort of forget so much of who you are, he began to forget himself. And we had this extremely tender and unusual crossing over in in time, it felt like. Um, So the structure of the book looks at these seven years and each chapter is about some experiences from the corresponding year in recovery. But I think it's really, to me, it's also a book about memory and about learning how to write a new language for yourself and learning how to have a personal philosophy in a lot of ways. And it's about love, of course, and hope too. But yeah, the, uh, the main sort of line of the narrative is, is my recovery and my father's descent into Alzheimer's. And although, of course, reality turns out to be a little bit messier, there was a reason why you chose to do it in seven chapters. So tell us why seven. Well, when I first started structuring it, I thought seven was a wonderful number. It has this kind of fascinating symbolic quality to it. So there's a lot of sevens in many different religions and Christianity and Judaism and and Buddhism. Um, You know, seven days of the week, seven planets, seven deadly sins, seven, you find it everywhere. And numerologists believe it to be this kind of perfect number because it's a combination of four, which is the number of mortality, the sort of human, and three, which is the number of the divine. And it's very self-contained and perfect. So that was the idea, was that it it sort of ended in this, this point of indivisible finality that isn't an end because recovery never ends and life continues. But it felt like a good place to stop. But then, of course, life continued to happen and The chapters remained seven, but the scope of what they covered had to expand in order to contain what ended up unfolding in my life and in my father's life. The book starts and ends with interludes on the Italian island of Stromboli. Um, But the real inciting incident that kicks off the narrative is a motorbike accident that you're in. Tell us about that. And as well as that, I was really interested in the way that you actually 
tell that story in the book because the story is sort of broken up into a you tell the first initial story and then fill us in on more details later so tell us about that as well well I realized when I started writing this this story of recovery that when you're writing memoir it's the story of things that happen to you but it's also a construct right it's a literary exercise and that means that you find yourself thinking about things like what makes a good narrative and how do you tell a story well and I realized that as in any fictional story or real life story for people to care about what happens to a character a narrator a person they need to know what the stakes were so I really didn't want to dwell too much in the mayhem of addiction because I don't find it as interesting as recovery I mean addiction is intensely monotonous for the person suffering from it so even when the experiences you end up having might be very exciting in some respects because they're unusual or they're outlandish or they're dangerous or they're stupid or humiliating whatever the experience of them is always the same. It's it's just relentlessly horrible. Um, and recovery is this experience that is completely open and unknown, basically. It's, it's lived in a totally different way. However, for you to care about the recovery of this narratorial voice, you need to know some of what she went through. And the motorbike accident is something that happened in my life towards the end of my drinking when I was in Italy visiting a friend, I just handed in the first chapter of my thesis and I was really quite unhinged, I think it's fair to say, at that point in my life. And I made some very bad choices based on seeking risk, which is very common for people who are suffering with addiction um, and ended up having this this accident. Um, I was on the back of a guy's bike and we came off the bike in the rain and then we went to make some pretty bad choices as a result. And it was an extreme experience that I had. I hesitated to include it at first because I'm always nervous of trauma porn and I'm always nervous of using extreme shock value experiences in a cheap way. But it felt the more I wrote, the more necessary it was to include it because you have to be honest also about where you end up if you make a big life change quitting drinking. And so I brought it into the story and, and realized actually I wanted to replicate on the page my real experience of coming to terms with that story in my own life. And it wasn't very straightforward. And I didn't tell myself the full version of it at first, in a way. I tried to minimize it because I didn't really want it to mean what it would mean if I saw it for what it was, which was a very risky episode that could have ended very differently, you know, could have ended my life. So I wanted to replicate that in the book. And I wanted to explore the psychological experience of denial basically because it is another thing that's so baked into the experience of addiction there's another narrative voice in the book another character maybe and that's your inner voice who you coin worm tongue so tell us something about that decision well worm tongue the name came from um tolkien his famous sycophant is called worm tongue and um it was one of those things where I thought I sort of came up with it myself and then realized it was lurking in my mind because my parents read me those stories when I was a kid. And it stuck with me, this image of this kind of wormy tongue whispering in your ear. And um, yeah, the inner voice, it felt crucial to include it in the book because it's been a very large part of my life, my inner life. And I think one of the things I wanted to do with this book was represent that inner life on the page. And really, you know, it's a, in some ways, it's a kind of psychological portrait of a person who happens to be me, but it's also the construct on the page. And Wormtongue, for a long time in my head, had a distinct voice from my own. And I realized as I was writing about early recovery, when that voice became very loud for a while and very, very 
it became a real director in my life. I needed to put that down on the page. There was no other way to be honest about what that felt like. And the more I wrote him, the more I saw him. It was a fascinating experience. And he he actually went in the writing from being just an inner voice to, to this whole character. But it, I think it's something that, that some readers really respond to and some really don't, which I also find fascinating. I've had a lot of readers who really related to it and felt they had their own inner voice and they could also name it and make it separate from themselves. And then I've had some readers who just don't experience their own mind that way at all. And they're fascinated by it, but they don't relate to it, which I think is super interesting. There's a section of the book set in New York, which I was there just a month ago, and you went to a lot of the same places in the book that we did. So it brought that right back. Oh, amazing. Um, but I don't want to talk about New York particularly, but I raise it just because I wanted to talk about um, the artist Louise Bourgeois, who um, was a big part of the book, but also was you know, a, a large part of the thesis that you wrote for your PhD. Um, so tell us why she's important to you. I've always loved her work. I've always felt a connection to it. And when I was working on my thesis, which was about hysteria, she felt like a very important figure. The film directors I was writing about were all men, some of them queer men, but still it was the sort of male directors imagining of hysteria through their female characters. And I really wanted to bring this strong female voice in as a counterbalance to that. And that ended up being Louise Bourgeois, who is referenced one of the films, Skin I Live In by Pedro Almodovar. And he references her work directly in the, in the mise-en-scene in that film. So that was the link in the thesis. And while I was working on those chapters of the thesis, I was in this stage of early recovery where I was incredibly raw and incredibly alive to the world and very porous and felt I've always responded in a deep way to art, but I felt even less like there was any space between me and the things I was looking at at that time. And Louise Bourgeois became this sort of guiding figure and her art became sort of folded into my own unconscious in a, in a really fascinating way. And I knew she had to be in this book as well. And actually, she's kind of the figure that brings my thesis into this book, almost like a weird little paratext lurking in the background. But the spiral in particular became a very important part of this book. And the epigraph of the book is a quote by Louise Bourgeois about the spiral, which she envisaged as going in two directions, one which takes you towards destruction and one which takes you towards creation, basically. And that was vital to telling this story because I think that very eloquently describes the switch between addiction to recovery, but also the complex reality of living in addiction because it's not always it's not always terrible and it's a very ambivalent state there's times when it's exciting and enlivening and that's why you keep going and then you know you end up in in the gutter but the spiral just seemed like this perfect expression of ambivalence so it comes back th repeatedly throughout the book and and Louise is there as this sort of I guess she's like the godmother of the book in some way <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Octavia Bright, and we're talking about her book, This Ragged Grace, a memoir of recovery and renewal. And Octavia, we'll get on to talk a bit about your father in the second half. But before we do that, part of your recovery from your alcohol addiction involved going to the classic meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous something which I I personally have always been a little suspicious of. You mentioned this yourself in the book as well. So tell us how this, how you found it. Yeah, I I was very suspicious uh, to begin with. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone ends up in AA meetings by mistake. So if you find yourself willing to explore them, it's usually because you really need help. And in spite of all my hesitance, I did find a lot of help there. I remained suspicious of the kind of religious element. And as I went to meetings and continued to go to meetings, I relaxed about that because I realized it actually wasn't necessary for me to get too tangled up in it. And the reality was that addiction is a very isolating experience. And the thing on offer in AA is community. And that is one of the things that gets you out of the isolation of addiction and into a new way of looking at things and thinking about things. I don't attend meetings anymore. I haven't for quite a long time, but they were very vital to that early stage in my recovery. But they weren't the only thing. And I also was under the care of a psychiatrist and I was taking antidepressants. And for me, that three-pronged approach was very important, which is something I make extremely clear in the book, because I think, you know, addiction is a very common illness. Many, many people fall into it at different times in their lives for various reasons. And the truth that there simply isn't the right amount of provision to help people get well if they want to. And AA steps in to fill the gap that is left by services that might be run by the health service, for example. So I think it is a tool that can be life-saving for some, really helpful for others. It's complicated. You have to go in with quite a strong sense of yourself, um, not to get swept up in some of its murkier elements. But overall, I think it's a force for good. But yeah, I think it's like anything that doesn't have 
sort of professional supervision. It very much depends on the group you find yourself in as well. And if anyone is listening who's curious about AA, if you've been to a group and you don't like it, try another one. You know, it's all about the individuals who make it up, whether or not it's going to work for you, I think. But yeah, ultimately, suspicious is fine, but there's good there too. So then tell us something about who your father was and when his Alzheimer's first started to manifest itself. My dad was born in 1931, so he was much older than my mother and much, much older than me. And he was always, in some respects, an old man in my mind as a child and as a young adult. But he was a very vigorous man. He was very um, energetic and strong. And it was a real shock that he started to deteriorate in this particular way. He was very um, anchored to reality as a person, unlike me, who was totally distanced from it at that point in my life. And the strange thing started to happen was that he started to behave more like me in a way. He started to disentangle himself from reality. And, and for a while, it took us a minute to understand what was going on. And then we realized, of course, this was the beginning of something that looked a lot like dementia. And eventually that was confirmed by the doctors. And his story became really, really important in this book, because I think hindsight tells me I was aware of something changing in him long before I realized it consciously. And I think part of the last year of my drinking being quite as extreme as it was, was fighting with that denial, actually, and wanting to reject this inkling I had that something was changing. And then getting sober and actually being able to stay sober, I think, was also very linked to the changes happening in him because I understood deeply somewhere within myself that I couldn't be the child anymore. There simply wasn't room for there to be two children in the family of adults. <laughs> and he was going to be the person who needed the most care. And I feel it's a strange and complicated thing to explain, which I think is why I wanted to write about it in an entire book, because I feel like those fates of ours were very intertwined and my ability to meet him where he needed to be met in his Alzheimer's was also partly grounded in my experience of addiction and mental instability because I could meet him there very easily. It wasn't that it wasn't painful for me, it was, but it wasn't difficult to meet him in delusion, to meet him in an unstable place. And I think that allowed me to be of use to him and of service to him, which was a, a sort of weird upside to the fact that I'd been very ill myself at another time if that makes sense and throughout the book he obviously gradually deteriorates this is a, a disease that nothing can be done about and then when the end inevitably comes there's a situation going on which I mean is it's just unbearable to read what happened but at the same time it's something that a lot of other people went through very recently tell us the particular circumstances about the end? Well, the thing that blew up my neat seven-year structure was that the pandemic arrived and meant that my father, who was in a nursing home at the time, and I and, and my mother, we were separated from him because of the government restrictions. And then um, extremely tragically, in the, in the January after the whole eat out to help out debacle, he and eight other people on, on his floor in his nursing home all contracted COVID. And by that point, he'd been in and out of hospital with chest infections and things. And we just knew he, he wouldn't survive it. So it, we had this awful period of, I think it was 10 days, knowing that there was only one ending in, in sight, not quite knowing when it was going to come. And then when it was his final hours, 
I wasn't able to go and be with him because my mother had a heart condition. And so she was at very high risk of, of COVID. And if I had gone to be with my father, then I'd have to be separate from her for the full two weeks afterwards. So it was kind of a terrible sort of a terrible moment, but a very easy choice to make because I knew what he would have wanted me to do. But it felt so important to include this. We then had a a mad, very surreal deathbed scene with him, which was facilitated by an iPad um, on, on our end. And the carers in his nursing home who were really remarkable. You know, they were there and they were in their N95 masks and their full PPE kit and surgical gloves and everything. And they stood in for us and held his hand and, and stroked his head and spoke to him. And we watched on a screen and we talked and talked so he could hear us. And it was it was honestly one of the strangest experiences of my life. I think being with somebody as they're dying is always going to be extremely surreal because you're everything is so heightened. It's not really surreal, it's more hyper-real. But the hyper-reality of that particular experience was dialed up because we were on these screens. But I really wanted to include it in the book because I know we were one family out of hundreds, thousands who suffered in that way and who went through that extremely bizarre, cataclysmic change in this very unnatural way. And I think it's important for that to be part of the story that's told about life in general, because, you know, the pandemic feels distant now, even though it's not, and COVID still is around and people are still suffering. But I think people do want to forget. And one of the subtext in this book is really about denial. And I really don't want us to be in denial about COVID and about what we went through culturally and as a community, as well as individual families. I remember speaking to you a few years ago at, a, at an event and you saying that you you had just or you were just about to move to Margate. And there's a couple of chapters in this book that talk about your um, being constantly drawn to the seaside, and um, both to obviously to Stromboli, but also to Cornwall and then to Margate, where you live for a period of time. And this chapter talks brilliantly, I think, about the very thin line between you're living there on your own. And it talks about the thin line between seeking solitude and falling into loneliness. Tell us something about your time in Margate. I went to Margate to be by the sea and also to get a break from caring for my dad and everything that had become so heavy. And I really thought I found the fix. You know, I thought I'll, I'll move to the coast the sea, I'll swim every day, I can be home to help my parents once a week and stay the night and be there. And I can, you know, find some solace. And I didn't really think it through. And I think that's great. I, I think there's a lot to be said for sometimes not thinking things through too much and just taking a chance and going, especially when you're on your own and you have the flexibility to do it. But I arrived and it was that classic thing of the, you know, the glittering new start with all of its promise. It had a different lesson to teach me, I suppose. And I arrived and I ended up having this a very, again, ambivalent time where there were days where I felt truly free and, you know, swimming in the sea, this cold, icy sea and walking along the great big stretches of sandy beach and, and doing my work and having my headspace back where I felt really like I'd cracked it, you know, cracked the code, I got it right. And then there were other days where the loneliness felt absolutely crushing. And I think it is a very difficult balance to strike. And when you are, you know, not in a partnership and especially when you're dealing with any kind of loss, I think, you know, finding solace in your own company is a very, very good thing to be able to learn how to do. Knowing when you're becoming too strange and isolated is another really important trick. And I don't think you can learn it until you've gone through it, you know. And I realized after a while there that I had become very cut off from the things that I actually wanted. And in the really 
heavy silence of loneliness, I learned what it was that I really did want actually was connection. And I, I think that's something I took away from it. And I took away from my time by the sea is that, you know, sometimes you really do have to go right out onto the edge of yourself to listen hard for what you really want. You can't hear it when you're in that middle ground of just keeping the plate spinning and seeing what's going on. You, you sometimes need to go to a certain extreme and then you'll learn what the next phase needs to be. And I ended up coming back to the city because what I heard on the edge of myself was, actually, this is getting a little weird now, girl. Come on, like, reach out, go back to society, to community and see what happens there. And I was very glad that I did. Tell us how this book actually came together then, the writing it. Was it was the writing of this therapeutic? No, not at all. Um, but it was interesting. It was very, very interesting. And I think it was something I wanted to do because I wanted to put these two colossal, colossal life experiences into some sort of shape that made them make a bit more sense. I wanted to understand them both better. And I've always been someone who writes and reads to understand things. And so it was a gift that I was able to take the time to do this in this way. But, you know, I'm a writer first and foremost. And I think when you're a writer by instinct or whatever, by personality, everything you experience, you're looking for what's interesting in it. And there's a lot about living with addiction that's very painful. There's a lot about losing a parent to Alzheimer's that's incredibly painful. But also often the painful experiences in life are very, very interesting to pursue and um, pick apart and understand and, and look at because they're painful, because they're meaningful. And I think by going into what is meaningful in your life, you can find deeper understandings that will connect you actually to basically broadly humanity. So I wouldn't say at all that it was therapeutic, but it was very, very interesting. And there was something extremely enlivening about understanding the threads that connected to my father, but also my work to all these other ideas I'd had when I was working on my PhD and these experiences I'd had and noticing patterns and, and just the very exciting project of turning your lived experiences into something beautiful and enriching, hopefully to other people, you know, that was my goal anyway, I don't know if I succeeded. <laughs> and just to finish this off then, if I may again, take a liberty and steal something from the uh, very brilliant literary friction podcast um, <laughs> you normally ask your guests to to recommend something so octavia would you recommend us something by simone Weil, who is um one of the other godmothers of this book absolutely i mean i would say definitely start with gravity and grace which is the book that that i reference a lot in this ragged grace which is a collection of her writings they're written in fragments and it's almost like kind of philosophical jazz and poetry to read it and they're divided into different sections that are almost themed and I think it's such a fascinating text and there's lots in there that doesn't speak to me but the things that do are very very profound and you'll find that each of these little nuggets of text from her will leave you thinking you know they're on themes like friendship or the void which is one of my favorite favorite chapters of it um love she has some really fantastic sort of aphorisms and sayings about love um, but also about faith she was a very religious woman and as a secular person I think it's very interesting to look at what she says about God and how she sees life force and connection and the drive to be close to other people and to understand the universe so she was a fascinating fascinating thinker 
So I've been talking to Octavia Bright. We've been talking about her book, This Ragged Grace, a memoir of recovery and renewal, which is out now in the UK from Canongate. Octavia, thanks so much for telling me about it. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. It was a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.